Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Come in, come in, make yourself comfortable, grab a seat, get ready for another wonderful story, a half-forgotten story of counterculture and music in the 1950s and 60s and 70s in London. It's a story that features all sorts of very famous musicians. The Rolling Stones, Cream, the Yardbirds, David Bowie. It's a story that features London history and hippies and beatniks. Here we are in Soho, but if we walked southwest through the city, all the way to Chelsea, we would have crossed two of the traditional epicenters of swinging London, of countercultural London. But if in Chelsea we went to the riverside and embarked on a boat and sailed upstream up the Thames to the place where the city started to end, where the banks were leafy and green, and in the river itself were little islands we would come to a place that was the third and rather forgotten epicentre of countercultural London, Eel Pie Island. An island that became the home to the 50s trad jazz movement, to the early 60s R&B movement, to the psychedelic movement, and then a place that transformed for a while into a hippie commune. And in today's episode, I welcome Andrew Humphreys, the author of an upcoming book, Raving Upon Thames, that details that third centre of countercultural swinging London. And it's a rather wonderful story. He's, uh, as well as a writer, he's a publisher with Paradise Road of specialist niche books on London. And the story that he tells in Raving Upon Thames is a rather wonderful one. So I'm very pleased to welcome him here to the Bureau. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, Andrew, as I was saying earlier, the absolutely terrific thing about this story that you've, you know, you're about to publish is that it's right at the intersection of counterculture and London history, actually. And also, it's a kind of rather forgotten story, as you were saying. But I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, who's not from London, who doesn't know where this place Richmond is, or even Eel Pie, uh, before we get in, dig deep into the actual uh, the music and the culture and all that wonderful stuff, where is it? Richmond is southwest London. It's where the tarmac edges into the green fields of Surrey. So it's... Um, it's semi-rural. Um, it's it's a lovely part of London. It's very green. It's centered around Richmond Hill, which has a very famous view of um, looking down south towards uh, Hampshire, um, and has been painted by Gainsborough and Turner. It's always been a place that's been enjoyed by the aristocracy who would sort of flee the smells and stenches of London and go west. Um, and build houses by the river. So at one point it was sort of aristocrats and minor royals. Um, in more recent times, it is barristers and solicitors mm -hmm. and particularly um, retired or semi-retired actors. I mean, Richmond has, you know, stage lovies like other boroughs have pigeons. Um, so it has a very sort of rarefied air. It's a very beautiful part of London, um, which 
makes the story that I tell in the book slightly more surprising. It's yeah. not the sort of place you would expect to be a hub of counterculture. No, I mean, uh, I, I associate it with being quite posh, of course, Richmond Park and the deer and all that stuff. But also, uh, sort of in my mind, it was the place that sort of rock stars kind of bought a big pad when they'd sort of made it in some way. And they sort of like, you know, they buy themselves a large West London house, right? Well, that's right. I mean, these days, um, actually, until quite recently, Mick Jagger and Pete Townsend both live locally. You would see Pete Townsend in the local Waitrose and Mick Jagger about two Christmases ago turned up in the local pub to do the pub quiz. Um, so it still is that sort of place. But originally they were there as sort of teenage mm. dropouts playing the pubs and right. pubs and possibly that's how they came to know Richmond. Then later right. on when they made the money, they could actually afford to live there. Absolutely. So I think one of the, you know, the most surprising things for many people, uh, including me, which is, you know, in a way, where you start off, uh, the book is raving on Thames. And of course, you know, when we think about the counterculture or that beat culture of sort of late 50s and 60s going through into 70s, I tend to think about um, central London, Soho, you know, maybe Fitzrovia, um, but also Chelsea, the King's Road, maybe Camden, you know, those sort of places. But you just don't, th you know, I don't think any was really considered Richmond and, you know, particularly Eel Pie Island, that leafy suburb as being a centre of counterculture, but it was, right? It, it was, and this this um, disinformation about um, Richmond as this sleepy suburb started way back when you had that Time article that was published, was it 1967, Swinging London? That's the article that really sort of started to... Um, uh, enshrined the legend of swinging London um, and that set it all in Mayfair and the King's Road and Soho and it specifically mentioned that there were parts of London that the swing didn't quite reach to like sleepy suburbs such as Richmond <laughs> um, which was entirely wrong so the disinformation starts right back in 1967 um, but the sort of um, the catch, the, the the tagline of my book is Carnaby Street, Kings Road, Richmond upon Thames. And what I'm attempting to do is sort of reinstate Richmond as part of swinging London. In fact, at one point, I even say the sixes might never have happened if it hadn't have been for what went on in Richmond. Yeah, amazing. Uh, you got this great quote at the beginning of the book. It says, I've heard a lot about that place. It's full of bleeding layabouts. Ban the bomb types and drugs. What do you all want to join the likes of them for? They're all up to no good. Bloody reds, the lot of them. Well, that was a warning to Don Hughes to stay away from Eel Pie Island um, back in the day. And of course, we are going to, I mean, it, the book isn't just about Eel Pie Island, but I mean, it, it is sort of at the centre of it. And of course, the fascinating thing about that is that it bridges this, these periods from the sort of late 50s, well, the skiffle and trad jazz era, through the 60s um, and into the early 70s when it gets transformed into this hippie commune right before it sort of changes again so Andrew, why don't why don't we walk through it the chronology of it all um from the beginning i mean we're going to focus on the island of course and maybe you could say a few words about the island so the island is part of richmond and i think for most people again i mean we're not aware that there are islands in the thames right so tell us about the actual eel pie itself 
Okay, well, when I, I, I use the term Richmond quite loosely, there is a town called Richmond, but Richmond is also a borough which takes in neighboring Twickenham. Um, both Richmond and Twickenham are on the Thames, and at this point, the Thames is dotted with lots of small ites or river islands. Um, and most of them have some form of inhabitation on them, whether it's you know, boat yards or whatever. Um, and Eel Pie Island is just off the coast of Twickenham, uh, about a mile and a half uh, upriver from Richmond. And Eel Pie Island has been occupied in one form or another since the 17th century. Um, what used to happen was Richmond and Twickenham, it was where the aristocracy lived, but other people would come up from London on pleasure cruises. So these islands were where they would stop off. And Eel Pie Island in particular, from about the 17th century, had a notable inn. And this inn received pleasure cruises and it served pies filled with eels, which is where the name comes from. Um, going way back, it, it even had a bowling galley. It's, this area has always been associated with leisure. Later on, Charles Dickens used to spend a lot of time in the area. And then I think Nicholas Nickleby, he describes a pleasure cruise up from London to Eel Pie Island, where they had lunch and listened to a locomotive band, a traveling <laughs> band of musicians. Um, so the area has always been associated with leisure and having a good time. And music then in that case. And the music as well, yeah. So so let's um, dive in. So um, it, the, your story really kind of starts in terms of the um, Eel Pie Island and music and counterculture in 1956, right? So with this character Arthur Chisnell, the Prince of Pan, as you call him, the Eel Pied Piper. Let's hear about that. Um, 56, yes, this is the era of trad jazz. And um, I mean... You know, from the perspective of 2021, we look at trans jazz as being sort of, you know, old guys with waistcoats and pints of real ale. But if you go back to 1956 and the 50s, trad jazz was counterculture. Um, trad jazz was bohemian. It was dancing barefoot, um, wearing polo necks. Um, and it, it was a good time. And trad jazz um, was spreading across London in clubs and people were launching jazz clubs and somebody discovered an old, not quite disused, but um, a semi-derelict hotel on Eel Pie Island and they persuaded the owner to let them use the ballroom as a jazz venue. Um, so he agreed, they cleaned up the venue and they started holding jazz parties weekly there, which attracted all the local youth and at some point, this character called Arthur Chisnell took over management of the ballroom and the jazz club and hosted parties there for local teenagers. 
I think it's. I think I'm just going to. I'm just going to jump in there because, of course, we covered a bit of this with Billy Bragg, and um, we was talking about the whole, you know, the skiffle movement, uh, but also Ken Collier, who was all part of the skiffle movement, but also part of the tri jazz movement. In fact, he was a big uh, mover and shaker. And you talk about him, of course, in that. And of course, it was also the time of the kind of the you know the, the birth of the teenager, as you say. So trad jazz was this was the dance music of the time, right? And uh, you know, it was duffel coats. It was um, coffee bars. It was that first time really in the post-war, really, when the kind of teenager was emerging as a, as a sort of phenomenon in itself. So really, this island and the ballroom um, was, you know, one of, the, one of the hearts of it, right? Well, it was. What made it a little bit different, there were lots of jazz clubs. They were springing up all over London, particularly in Soho. But what made Eel Pie a little bit different was, obviously, it was an island in the Thames. The venue was an old decrepit hotel built in 1830, not in terribly good shape, falling to pieces. Um, but that was part of the appeal because you had to cross to the island on a ferry. It was slightly overgrown. It had some shacks where slightly eccentric people lived. And then you discovered this island, this uh, hotel in the middle of the island, which was like something out of a Tennessee Williams play. And in fact, Ken Collier, said that Eel Pie Island was the closest thing to New Orleans he'd experienced <laughs> in Britain. So, you know, it had this certain air about it. And also, uh, quite importantly, out of sight of the, the parents, grown-ups and the authorities to an extent, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And the fact that you had to get across on a ferry, I mean, there was a bridge built a little bit later um, in the late 50s, but originally you went across on a ferry. Um, so there was this sense of going to another place that was sort of offshore. Great stuff. So, OK, so Arthur Chisnell, you know, sees an opportunity there in this kind of decrepit ballroom, opens this jazz club. Uh, and did it become popular quickly? It became, yes, it did. It became very popular. It was, um, it became a beatnik centre. What helped was there were several art schools in the area. There was a big art school in Twickenham and in Ealing um, and in Kingston. And it attracted a lot of the art students. So word got around, he never did any advertising, but there were a lot of young people lived in the area, attending the art schools, attending teacher training colleges. There was a music college nearby, an army music college. So it became really popular really quickly. It helped that at the beginning he didn't charge either. Right, okay. So and in terms of actually the bands that were starting to appear there, I mean, you mentioned Ken Collier, and as Billy did, you know, he, he's rather forgotten now, in, I think, isn't he? But, um, you know, was a very important, pivotal, uh, uh, you know, person in that whole scene, wasn't he? So there was him, and who else started to play there? Well, Ken Collier actually played the very first night of the Eel Pylon Jazz Club. So he launched the club. He was, he was a huge figure. But pretty much... Every name in 50s jazz. So you got all the big names like Ackerbilk, Kenny Ball, Chris Barber. They all played there regularly. Um, this used to be every Sunday night. And then he would have other smaller local bands playing support and other odd nights. Um, sorry, Saturday nights it was originally. It expanded to Sundays. Um, so... 
But what was interesting about the club, what made it possibly unique, was that Arthur actually had no interest in jazz at all. He was tone deaf. He didn't particularly <laughs> care for music. For Arthur, the whole project was about social working. Hmm. His background was um, he'd attended a course in Wales on social working. So his idea in setting up this jazz club was he wanted to attract youth. And in particular, he wanted to attract disaffected youth and runaways and problem people because he wanted to put into practice the theories that he'd learned about when he went, went to college. So Arthur ran this as a social club rather than a jazz club. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, he wouldn't be the first promoter who's tone deaf. And I mean, I'm, uh, pr- music promoters often aren't that interested in music, in, in, my, in my experience. But, but actually, that uh, sort of psychogeographically speaking is kind of very interesting because, of course, that kind of countercultural aspect, the social outwork and, and turned into social living, didn't it? And experiments that runs through it as well, doesn't it? That's part of the counterculture as well. You've got music and then you've got this kind of alternative ideas about how people can come together and particularly young people. Exactly. And- I mean, I think that's what made Eel Pie different because the other clubs that you got in Soho and elsewhere, I mean, they were run as financial ventures. They were there mm-hmm. to make money. I don't think Arthur ever really cared about making money. And in a way, he he was happy to step the wrong side of the line because he wanted his club to appeal to a particular type of audience, you know, tearaways, runaways. He wanted to attract those kinds of people in because he wanted to help them. I mean, he raised money to send some of them to college. He found them accommodation. Um, So Arthur's motives in running the club were completely non-commercial. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, another forgotten figure, actually. Uh, And, uh, you know, part of that whole bourgeoning, idealistic uh, thing which has gone into the 60s. So we're moving into the 60s right now. Uh, You know, his tenure was sort of six years there, wasn't it? And then the music itself... uh, Tried jazz starts to blend into the next phase, doesn't it? And not just on the on the island, but in the kind of wider area. So tell us about that. Yeah, not so much blend. It was wiped out. Um, mm. Again, I, the, the, the next thing that came along and what made the island's name, had it stayed a jazz club, it might never have been as famous as it turned out to be. But what really turned the fortunes around of Eel Pie was rhythm and blues, R&B, which originated in West London, or at least the UK version of R&B. Um, it started at the Yealing Club, which um, you know some of the listeners might know. You might even have talked about the Yealing Club before. I don't know. But this is another West London venue that in 1962 hosted the first R&B club in the UK. Um, And it's through the Ealing Club that the various members of the Rolling Stones were introduced to each other and some of them first played together. They did their first ever gig at the Marquee, but their first residency was back in Richmond at a club called the Crawdaddy. 
they kicked off this residence at the Crawdaddy in February 1963. And when the Rolling Stones, who were part of this new R&B movement that was taking off in the UK, they started at the Crawdaddy in Richmond, 63, in the back room of a pub in suburban southwest London as a bunch of unknown teenagers doing cover versions of black American soul music. They were there for about six months. By the end of their residency, they were off on a UK tour. They'd been on mm -hmm. TV. They had the first single and they were discovered there by their manager, Andrew Lou Golden. So in the space of six months, they went from zero to 60 miles an hour. Suddenly R&B was this huge thing. And the Stones also played Eel Pie Island. You could see them Sunday night in Richmond, Wednesday night, a mile down river, at Eel Pie Island. What the cavern was to the Beatles, the Crawdaddy and Eel Pie Island were to the Stones. So the birthplace, really, of that kind of whole movement. And, um, and they weren't, of course, the only people, uh, the only later to become very famous people who were playing there, right? Who else was there? No, after the Stones, I mean, the Stones gained a huge fan base in Richmond and, you know, pretty quickly they were no longer Richmond's best kept secret. Um, and eventually they just became too big for Richmond and they moved on. The management of the Crawdaddy, a fascinating Georgian guy called Giorgio Gamelski, he had to find a new band to replace the Stones. As it happened, there was a local band that he went to see audition who he thought fitted the bill perfectly. The Stones left one Sunday. This new band kicked off the next Sunday. They were the Yardbirds. In two or three weeks of starting at the Crawdaddy, they lost their original guitarist, replaced him with a new guy, um, and that guy was Eric Clapton. So you had the Stones launch from the Crawdaddy. As soon as they moved on, you get the Yardbirds coming with Eric Clapton and then later Jeff Beck, and they're around Richmond for about a year playing regular gigs. Um, and the Stones and the Yardbirds, they become sort of two of the key bands in the R&B scene, which sort of launch a thousand imitators. It's an amazing thought, isn't it, that this, you know, rather forgotten, uh, certainly, well, in fact, to me, unknown, actually, club, the Crawdaddy. I mean, we know about the Flamingo. Pete Watts talked about the Flamingo on this programme. We know about the Marquee. Um, we didn't know about Ealing, actually, Jazz Club. I didn't, anyway, and the Crawdaddy. But, I mean, I mean let, let's cross let's cross the bridge. There's a bridge now over to, back over to Eel Pie. So uh, Arthur Chisnell and his sort of social experiments, sort of by 62, he'd, he'd sort of moved on, hadn't he? So what was happening then? Who was running it? And um, who was this, you know, this decrepit ballroom, which had become a kind of centre of teenage, teenage counterculture? 62 Arthur is still running it, um, but it's no longer a jazz club. It's, it's R&B. So you have the Stones on the Wednesday night residency. Um, and R&B is obviously the new sound that the kids love. And although Arthur has no great interest in music, he's interested in what the kids are interested in. Right. They're telling him they love the Rolling Stones. So when the Rolling Stones move on, he wants more of the same. Um, so he's the Rolling Stones are followed by people like Long John Baldry, who was a huge name in R&B at the time. Um, and artists who would be better known later on, like Davy Jones, who was playing with a band called the Manish Boys. Of course, Davy Jones, in another couple of years, becomes David Bowie. 
Um, and Davy Jones used to come down to Eopie Island, travel across South London from Beckenham to go and check out the bands at Eopie Island. So he's in the audience. Also in the audience is a guy called Rod Stewart, who at this point has yet to appear on stage. After one particular gig where he'd gone to watch at Eopai Island, he's on the platform at Twickenham Station playing harmonica and he's heard and spotted by Long John Brawdry, who says, you know, you're not bad. How do you fancy joining my band? And this is how Rod Stewart ends up on stage. Um, so Eopai Island was pretty good at sort of um, <laughs> talent spotting, even though Arthur had absolutely no interest in music. He created the conditions that um, there were other clubs in London. Of course, there were the Marquis, the Flamingo, the Hundred Club. But Eopai Island was a place where other musicians would hang out to observe other musicians on stage and spend time in the bar. It, it, it had a different kind of atmosphere to any other club. It was more like a social club. It was more like a boot camp for R&B musicians. Love it. I mean, you're far way too young to actually be able to, uh, uh, to claim to have been there, Andrew, of course. But I mean, give us a description. So if you, what was it like if you were a teenager or a local teenager from Richmond or somebody like David Jones, to, soon to be David Bowie, travelled across uh, South London from Beckenham? Uh, what was it like to actually uh, sort of Sunday night at the at the ballroom on Eel Pie Island? Give us a sort of description. For a lot of the kids, I mean, a big part of the appeal was it was the place that your parents told you not to go to. You know, um, it had a bit of a reputation. Um, again, part of this was crossing to the island. And there was you crossed over the bridge and at the far end of the bridge, there was an old woman who in winter was stood over a brazier with fingerless gloves. And she would take the toll, a couple of pennies off you for crossing the bridge. Then you would walk on past the old lady and it would be a little sort of path that went through the undergrowth and the trees. And then you turn the corner and the hotel's there in front of you. You pass round the side and the hotel is facing the river. So you've got the river in front of you. And then you go up the steps, you pay your admission and go back down into this quite large room with a stage at the far end that would be you know, filled with a fog of smoke. Didn't actually smell that pleasant, so I've been told, because um, the island was prone to flooding, so the woodwork was rotting and you had the smell of, you know, the river. Um, but what it was, it was freedom. You were mm. away from your parents. Um, there was no real adult management. It was just a bunch of kids together, drinking beer, smoking, the odd reefer outside on the grass and loud music and dancing and, you know, um, completely uninhibited and unrestricted. What else do you want? I mean, um, so you mentioned uh, reefer there. So, uh, so people were smoking weed at that time. I mean, anything else with its second speed and stuff? That there, there was, there certainly was speed. Um, but I, from what, I understand not so much at the island, not at this point anyway. There, there was actually, to my great surprise, when I started researching this book, Richmond had um, a very prevalent drug scene. In fact, I've been told by a policeman who worked here in the 60s 
that Richmond was the first borough in London to get its own dedicated drug squad because (laughs) there was a problem here. In 1967, it had two policemen based in Richmond Station and one half of their time was spent just on drugs-related cases. But Arthur Chisnell was quite um, adamant. He, you know, he wanted sort of... um, He wanted to give the kids absolute freedom, but he didn't want to upset the law. So if anybody was caught smoking weed inside, they were told to take it outside and he would clamp down on drug use. He wouldn't have it within the hotel itself. Got it, right, yeah. And I mean, you describe it as this kind of this, you know, the fading glamour of the hotel. There's the ballroom with the the bar in it and stuff. And what about the rest of the hotel? Was it just sort of abandoned or could, uh, you know, young amorous teenagers um, take off and, uh, you know, visit the the rooms? See, now this, I don't know. There was a bar inside the hotel. The ballroom had a bar in the space where the music played. And there was also a bar in the hotel that you could go and visit and you didn't have to pay to go in the ballroom to hear the music. Um, The rest of the hotel, my understanding is it was pretty derelict. The person that owned the hotel from what I understand, bought it with a view to redeveloping it, but he was never able to get any of his schemes through. At one point, he wanted to turn it into an ice rink. That didn't get through. He wanted to turn it into a casino. That didn't get through. So I don't think he actually did anything with the hotel. He was busy scheming to come up with new ideas to turn the property into something other than a hotel. So it it wasn't run at a hotel. Um, And I don't think anybody who visited had access to the rooms. Not at this point anyway. But there were plenty of bushes. (laughs) So they didn't really need bedrooms. There was plenty going on in the undergrowth. I'm sure. So um, uh, the R&B scene, of course, starts to morph, doesn't it, Um, across London, across the UK, into the kind of next phase, really, of kind of 60s music, 60s counterculture. So um, what happens next? Is that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, there's many famous bands, uh, you know, had the birthplace in the Thames Valley, as you call it. So, what, what in terms of the hotel, Eel Pie, and the wider scene? What, what's the next phase? Well, I, this is the sixties. I mean, music is changing so rapidly. R and B suddenly booms in '63, and you know, every band in the UK wants to be an R and B band and follow in the steps of the Rolling Stones. But by '65, that's kind of all over, things are moving so quickly. 65, 66, we're moving into psychedelia. Um, R&B has become more blues rock. So you had Eric Clapton, who was with the Yardbirds. He's left the Yardbirds. He reappears with Cream as part of this, you know, heavy riffing trio. So the music's getting much heavier, more freakier. um, And that's reflected at Eel Pie Island. So once where you had Long John Baldry and his Hoochie Coochie Men doing R&B, now you've got the Pink Floyd appearing with their sort of, you know, psychedelic light shows. Cream as well, right? And uh, then later, uh, you know, you write about uh, Genesis, Free, Deep Purple. I think they, they all... come a little bit later. By this right. point, Arthur Chisnell has exited. What's happened is Eel Pie Island, the jazz club is closed down, um, mainly for health and safety violations. 
So they put a stop to it, it closes, and then it reopens a year later, run by this guy who is now advertising the ballroom as Colonel Burfoot's Rock Garden. Excellent. So very much kind of sign of the times. It's no longer the jazz club, it's Colonel Burfoot's Rock Garden. Um, and this is the period where we've got Free and Genesis and Supertramp and all the rest of the psychedelic bands. Of course, the scene is changing, but um, so the whole thing is becoming um, much more psychedelic. Yeah, I, I imagine that, uh, you know, an island in the Thames is um, pretty much perfect place for psychedelia, isn't it? You could h- hang out there in the daytime in the summer sun, you know, with the kind of water lapping at your feet, puffing on a, on a large spliff or dropping some acid or something. So it became part of that whole thing as well, did it? Well, absolutely. In some senses, this is where the counterculture in Richmond really comes into its own. In some senses, Richmond becomes the flip side to Soho. You've you've got the same music, the same fashions, the same people, but where Soho is urban and gritty, Mm -hmm. Richmond is pastures and green fields and the river. So Richmond becomes the perfect place to sort of just drop out and get back to the garden. And Richmond really sort of flourishes as a hippie centre in the late Mm. 60s. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I didn't know that either, actually. So, so, right, so rather posh, nice uh, Richmond becomes... I mean, you can understand it in terms of its pastoral nature. uh, And as you say, you you can get out of the city and uh, get back to the garden. I mean, obviously, I wasn't there at the time, but Mm. people that I've interviewed talk about... um, Along the river, it was lined with houseboats. A lot of these apparently were repurposed old naval vessels, a lot of which had been to Dunkirk. So you got landing craft and all kinds of ex-naval vessels that are now turned into floating accommodation on the river. Um, One of the people that I interviewed said, you know, you walked along the river between Richmond and Twickenham and it felt like being in Goa. Slightly different temperature, I imagine. Go on Thames, and that's but that's also very interesting in terms of the evolution of the island as well, isn't it? Because you know we've heard it many times on this show. You know I'm always fascinated by the '60s counterculture and whether people had a sense of you know the age of Aquarius, a new time coming, you know uh, the possibilities for the future, and all this uh, you know wonderful vision of the future and of course you can see that happening all around the UK and in London and of course in somewhere like Richmond and on the island itself as you detail and this is fascinating for me is that then the next thing that happens is that it becomes a hippie commune right and so Andrew walk us through that how did that evolve? As I said the hotel had always been decrepit it it, I mean uh, by this time, there have been so many feet pounding the dance floor that the dance floor had virtually disintegrated. Um, and the hotel couldn't be used anymore. It was, by this point, completely derelict. Um, and so what happened is we're now end of the 60s, 68, 69, So the squat scene had started to happen. You had the London Street Commune um, had been established. You had well-known squats like 144 Piccadilly, where squatters took over a huge building opposite Green Park. So the squat scene has begun in 
London, and um, a group of uh, people who were living communally in Richmond spotted that the, uh, the, the hotel on the island was empty, and so they moved in. They initially broke in, although they did negotiate with the owner of the property and they paid him a very, very nominal rent. Um, so they were in there from summer 69, and it sounds fantastic. They had a three-story hotel on an island overlooking the river to themselves. Um, and I think at the beginning, they may even have had electricity um, mm -hmm. They had running water, um, and so this 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 was absolute paradise. The leader of the eel pie commune was a guy called Clifford Harper, who was a self-professed anarchist, and he was a big fan of the New York Theatre Group, Living Theatre. Um, this was a group formed in New York who would take theatre onto the street and perform in prisons and other unusual venues. In 69, they'd been over to London and performed at the Roundhouse. Clifford Harper had seen the performances and was inspired by them. And what he wanted to do was use the deserted hotel on Eel Pie Island as a sort of centre for, you know, making forays out into mainstream society and launching theatrical attacks on, you know, the strength. <laughs> so he set up this commune in the hotel with a handful of people um, and word got out that there was this um, empty hotel and all comers were welcome, which was a wonderful thing, except within about 12 months, they'd gone from a dozen people to possibly 150 or 160. Wow. At which point the whole thing collapsed in on itself. From the perspective of 2021, you know, all those who live in uh, London, particularly in central London, um, or Richmond, actually, of course, you know, the where property prices are sort of, ast you know, astronomical. Uh, and of course, the whole squatting thing has been kind of eradicated, sadly. You know, uh, even when I came to London, people were still squatting, actually, you know, breaking into into um, unused empty buildings. And, and why not, you know? Uh, and of course, at that time, that was a very important thing. And people would just take possession of buildings. They would live there communally. I mean, the way I see it is that there were experiments in living, weren't there? Young people experimenting in living, driven by ideology, you know, mixed with weed and music and stuff like that. But in some ways, the radical stuff, and I, I often think that we live in quite conservative times in comparison, really. Uh, you know, we've, quite, we've become quite bourgeois, haven't we? But sort of 69 to 71... You know, up to 100 people living together in this um, abandoned hotel on an island. And, okay, it only lasted two years, and as you say, it collapsed in on itself, but it managed to um, survive. And, I mean, give us a description of what life was like in the hippie commune. You know, did they eat together? Did they play together? Did they, did they, was the music still going? You know, and um, could you just come and go? And was there any organisation? It sounded idyllic. And, you know, the ideas behind the founding of the commune... Um, you know, were very laudable, um, but it just very quickly all went a bit Lord of the Flies. Um, <laughs> because as people poured in, um, any sense of altruism disappeared. Um, the communal events that were happening at the beginning became less and less because lots of people turned up for very, very different reasons. There were also far too many drugs being taken. 
Um, there were lots, lots of people tripping out on acid, um, and, and people who take a lot of drugs tend not to be the most altruistic types of people. So um, at the beginning, for the first six months or so, it sounds like an idyllic existence, but as more and more people came in, where initially people had been able to have their own rooms, um, you know, within six months, you had people crashing in the cellar in the darkness, um, people fighting over rooms. Um, it was cold, the, they lost the power. And so they started to cannibalize the building. They started to tear down the wooden partitions and burn them to keep warm. Um, and then it got completely out of hand when people started tearing up the staircase and burning the stairs to keep warm. You get lots of different stories. There were people who thoroughly enjoyed their time there, but they tended to be people there that were for a short time and moved on before things really turned sour and there were wonderful events like they they would have parties in the garden acid parties where they would all sort of sit around a mandela with guitars and drop acid and musicians like peter green would drop by and serenade them there were there were certainly good times but towards the end it got very very grim and the founder clifford harper when he left i think he may have had pneumonia or something even more serious, but he was hospitalised for three months when he left. Right, yeah. Well, your chapter, of course, is Sex, Drugs and Head Lice, which sort of gives a flavour of what it might be like. It's quite interesting, isn't it, in those years, 69, 71. It's like the, uh, the darkening of the hippie dream, isn't it, as the 60s turn into the, turn into the 70s. I mean, there's that famous line Danny the drug dealer in Withnail and I you know when he's um at the end of the 60s and he's sort of saying you know it's over they're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths exactly yeah it's it's like where did we blow it yeah um, <laughs> I, I it's a fascinating period yeah I mean it only lasted two years but at one point I think in 1970 Eelpai Island was visited by the hog farmers who, um, you know, they were a radical commune from San Francisco who got in their buses, drove across America, shipped the buses to Europe where they were on the way to um, India. And they ended up stopping off at Eelpai Island. So such was the reputation of Eelpai Island that people from California had heard of it and came and visited on the way to India. Um, in fact, at one point, somebody called it the biggest DOS house in Europe. <laughs> so, so it was, on, it was on that route to the east, wasn't it? And I think there was a couple of people who, you know, who used it as a launching pad for their sort of journey to the east. When everybody scattered, um, eventually the, they had to get out because the place had been ripped to pieces and also the Hells Angels had appeared, uh, as often happens. Um, at one point, the Hells Angels moved in and things got a little bit scary. And mm. so a lot of the residents moved out. Um, but I was lucky enough to track maybe half a dozen people down who were part of that, um, you know, exercise and communal living on the island. Um, and a lot of them did move on. They, they, they went to Greece or they went to India. They went on the hippie trail. And today, some of them still live off grid down in Cornwall or in forests in Wales, you know, in a caravan with solar power. And the interesting thing is they've managed to kind of hold on to those ideals mm. that they had in the 60s. 
You've got to love it, haven't you? So in terms of the, the hotel's fallen apart, it's been cannibalised, and then uh, then there's a fire, isn't there, which kind of is, that seems to be the uh, mysterious fire. So tell us about that, because that, that really, in terms of the actual building, is the end, isn't it? That marks the end of the whole thing, doesn't it? It does. This was, this was early 1971, and in a way, it's quite symbolic. With the burning of the Eelpie Island, the sort of last vestiges of counterculture and the music scene in Richmond go up in flames. Um, there are lots of theories about the burning of the hotel. The, the owner who'd been trying to redevelop this site, um, a lot of people have accused him of setting fire to the hotel to get rid of the hippies. The truth is the hippies had gone. Um, the place was in ruins. The builders, the contractors had already come in and started to tear down the hotel and it went up in flames while it was in the process of being torn down. It seems like it was builders who were setting fire to rubbish. The fire got out of hand and took the hotel with it. However, on the same morning that the Eelpie Island Hotel went up in flames, there was another hotel on another island a mile away, an island called Tags Island. And that hotel also went up <laughs> in flames on the same morning, which sort of lends fuel to the conspiracy theorists. And also sort of symbolically uh, sort of seems a quite sort of fitting end, doesn't it, in some ways, that it went, went goes up in smoke. Because there is a sort of uh, analogy, I suppose, between what happened at Eel Pie and, you know, the, the turning of the counterculture as the 70s come. And everything gets a bit darker, um, and lots of social action and all sorts of other wonderful things happen, don't they? But the it is the kind of end of that golden era, the end, the, the end, the end of the end, the end of the rainbow, as you call it, at the end of your book. Yeah, it didn't entirely go away because some of the people who'd been living in Eel Pie Island simply hopped to the mainland and set up a squat in central Twickenham. In fact, it wasn't just a house. At one point, they actually took over a whole street in central Twickenham, right behind the police station. So that became quite a notorious squat. Um, but as you alluded to earlier, what happened was those rock stars that in 1963 were sort of, you know, strumming the first notes in squalid clubs, by 1971-72, they were rich enough to buy the mansion on the hill. And so this begins the process. People like um, Pete Townsend and Ronnie Wood of the Faces, um, they started buying properties in Richmond. So, um, you know, uh, in the past, you've got complaints from the local gentry about these rock musicians. Now the rock musicians were the local gentry. <laughs> making complaints themselves, no doubt, about uh, people making noise in their, near their lovely houses. A classic, a classic sort of metaphor for the counterculture, isn't it? Becoming absorbed by the culture and then turning into, into, in, in, turning into commerce. Uh, so, you know, Andrew, thanks so much. We've got, we're getting to the end. We've got to the end of the book and the, the story of the countercultural life of Eel Pie Island. And, um, but for anybody who's interested, what's it like there now? The reason I wrote this book is because... Richmond of today, you would never imagine anything like this could have happened in Richmond. I lived in Soho for 10 years and I moved out of Richmond because, uh, I'm sorry, I moved out of Soho um, just to be able to breathe a little bit more. Soho became incredibly claustrophobic. So I thought I was moving to this place of sort of English heritage architecture and pharaoh and ball colour schemes. <laughs> um, 
And then I find out that it's got this incredible counterculture history underneath once you scratch the surface, which the, there's no sign of it now, which is why I wanted to write the book to um, mm. not rekindle, but just to, but just to, let everybody know about this. Yeah, and to bring this, bring this story back into the light. Uh, but, I mean, can people go to Eel Pie Island now? I mean, and who's there? who lives there now? Actually, Eel Pie Island is still a fascinating place. It, it still attracts eccentrics and people who are keen to hold on to their individuality. It's still a sort of centre of rebellion. It's a private island. You can't explore it. You can walk onto the bridge and get a foothold on the island, but then you come to gates. But there are lots of artists still live there, still musicians there, still boat builders. It, it's a fascinating place still. It's just not publicly accessible. But the rest of Richmond's history is completely forgotten. Unlike Liverpool, which has created an industry around the cabin and the Beatles, no such thing in Richmond. You, you would never know that the Rolling Stones were based in Richmond for nine months. Um, I had a conversation with a local councillor a couple of years ago and asked why there was nothing to commemorate Richmond's rich musical and countercultural history. And he said it would attract the wrong kind of people. Which, which of course, is completely wrong, by the way, because, of course, all that stuff now, you know, there's, is, is part of you know the heritage it's become it's so long ago that it's actually become part of valued history but you've done a great service by by the book it lives on in the book you've actually brought it back to life as well it's a wonderful book it's beautifully illustrated it's published 22nd of november uh this year perfect christmas present i would think and um i know pre-orders are available now on your uh, paradise road website andrew we're going to put links to that <clears throat> in the show notes but um thank you so much it was it's it's oh um, you know, it's it's a great book, but also I think that it's a service to counterculture, but also the countercultural history of London too, isn't it? It's like I said at the beginning, it's this intersection of a lost story and the city's history, and uh, all the stuff which we love about the counterculture, the music and the lifestyle and the idealism, all mixed in together. So thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture to tell us about it. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks to you, listener, for listening. You can check out Raving Upon Thames uh, at the publisher's website, paradiseroad.co.uk. It's available for pre-sale now and in the shops very soon, along with uh, Andrew's other wonderful books about London. And I think we're going to return to some of those. Uh, it's got a book coming out about the Marquee Club and also about Denmark Street, Tin Pan Alley, as it was called, in the centre of London. We will be back next time with another story from the other side. Check us out at bureauoflostculture.com and they're all your favourite podcast places. You can subscribe to us, you can leave us a review, you can even send us a nice message. We'd like that. See you, hear you, then. I am Stephen Coates and this was the Bureau of Lost Culture. <laughs>